It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, welcome back to another episode in this series that we're calling The Storyline of Scripture. Again, we're kind of taking like a 50,000 foot view and we're just kind of looking almost like broad brushstrokes, the storyline of scripture and realizing that everything in the word of God focuses on Jesus Christ. We talked about this last time, but everything in the Old Testament leads us up to the reality of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. And everything in the New Testament flows out of that or points back to that same reality. It's a marvelous thought to think that everything that's going on in this book that God has given us focuses on Jesus Christ. Now, over the course of this series, we're walking through, again, what we're calling the storyline of Scripture. Last time, we looked at this concept of the kingdom introduced and rejected. And what I want to focus on today is this idea or the concept of the kingdom people and the promise. Just as a quick refresher from the last time, when you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and I know, again, in the last session, we only looked at a couple of those, but when you look at the first 11 chapters, what you see is a pattern of rejection that the people of God have against God himself and his kingdom. For for example, you have Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, rejecting, obviously, through the sin and rebellion. You have Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. You have the whole flood scene where the whole world is corrupt and doing their own thing. And you have Noah, the one righteous person standing against all that in Genesis 6 or 10. And then you have the whole Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And again, what you have is this pattern over and over and over again of people rejecting God and his kingdom. And yet God constantly coming back saying, hey, I want to rescue you. Now, all that being said, I want to briefly mention this idea of what is the real quote unquote beginning of the Bible? Well, of course, we would say, well, Genesis chapter one, that is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But I really love this quote by Don Richardson. Uh, He is a missionary. He he was a missionary to Papua New Guinea uh, during the great days of missions during the World War II era. And it's interesting, in his book, Eternity uh, in Their Hearts, he mentions this quote or this session that he was sitting through, them talking about the beginning of Scripture. And I just want to read you a passage from this book just as a stimulus to our discussion today. Uh, Here's what Don Richardson Richardson says. He says, Dr. Ralph Winter, director of the United States Center for World Mission in Pasadena, California, sometimes likes to startle audiences by saying things that they think can't possibly be true, but they are. For example, most Christians think, Dr. Winter once exclaimed, that the Bible doesn't really emphasize missions. They see it as a sort of afterthought Christ had at the very end of his ministry as if he snapped his fingers at the last minute before ascension into heaven and said, oh, by the way, men, there's just one more thing. And then cold turkey, he rocked them back on their heels with this unprecedented, virtually unforeshadowed command about taking the gospel out into all the world. But as a matter of fact, Dr. Winter continued, the Bible actually begins with missions, maintains missions as its central theme throughout, and then climaxes in the apocalypse with spontaneous outbursts of joy because the missionary mandate has been fulfilled. Dr. Winter passed, paused to rearrange his notes, while in the audience before him, one eyebrow after another furled with a question. Then someone raised their hand in a voice and voiced a question which was on everyone's mind. Dr. Winter, 
The Bible begins with a statement that God created the heavens and the earth. How can you find missions in that? Just what the scholarly doctor was waiting for. The main theme of the Bible, he responded, his eyes twinkling over the rim of his glasses, is God blessing all peoples on earth with a blessing first given to Abraham. And where does God's promise to bless all peoples on earth through Abraham start? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, someone replied. Genesis chapter 12, then, is the real beginning of the Bible, Dr. Winter continued. Everything prior to Genesis 12 is the introduction. Equally inspired, yes, but the introduction nonetheless. The main theme doesn't get underway until Genesis chapter 12. When you actually look at the first 11 chapters, I would even argue that there is a theme of missions even in the first 11 chapters. And I don't want to downplay the authority and authenticity of those 11 chapters. They are God's inspired word. And yet I really love just this thought that's in this passage or in this quote I just read, because when you look at Genesis chapter 12 and what you see God doing in Abraham is a key theme that runs through the entirety of the rest of scripture. In fact, if you ever get to come to one of our five-week programs, Sandy McConaughey has an incredible class called God's Eternal Purpose. And in that class, she walks through this promise in Genesis chapter 12 and show how just it is revealed on every page of scripture. God's big agenda is that he's going after a people. So with that being said, I want to look at this call to Abraham. It really is a call to, quote, come follow me, if I can borrow a New Testament phrase. And when you look at the story of Abraham, it's roughly, again, it's not perfect timing, but it's right around 2000 B.C., And so what I want to do is I want to read a couple of passages and just kind of flesh this out in terms of this concept of the kingdom promised. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 31 and 32, it says that Terah took Abram. So Terah is Abraham's father. So Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abraham's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan, And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Uh, Haran or Haran is is just north of the promised land. So you have this idea that here's Abram and Sarai, and of course their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah, but that they go up to this northern part out of Ur, which is along the banks of the Euphrates, comes up into this northern part right above the promised land, and they wait for a couple of years. And when their dad dies, they eventually make their way down to the promised land. Now, all of this is kind of coming to a head in chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. Now, let me just read those because this is so powerful. I love this passage. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. And Yahweh God said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now when you look at this idea that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, goes up to Haran or Haran, and eventually makes his way to the promised land, it's interesting what God is doing in the life of of Abraham. Uh, Here's a couple of Bible dictionaries, what they say about this place called Ur. It says, this is Nelson's dictionary. It says, Abraham lived in the city of Ur at the height of its splendor. 
The city was a prosperous center of religion and industry, a surprisingly advanced culture, particularly in the arts and the crafts. And New Unger's Bible Dictionary says this, Archaeology has revealed that in Abraham's day, Ur was a great and prosperous city with perhaps 360,000 people living in the city and its suburbs. I don't know about you, but any town that has 360,000 people is, even in our modern day, is fairly a big place. I mean, it's not New York City in terms of scale and size, but this is a really big city, especially for the ancient days. And when you look at this idea of what was going on in Ur, this, this was the hub of the world. This was a place of art and culture and religion and economy. It would almost be like if you took, you know, like Las Vegas, LA, and New York and kind of put them all in one area. That's kind of what Ur was back in the days of Abraham. And so you have this picture that God is calling Abraham out from the world, everything that he knows, all the cultural mindset stuff, and says, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. So again, look at this idea. God is calling Abraham out of the world to follow him, to follow God in faith. I love what Hebrews 11 verse 8 says. When you look at the the writer of Hebrews, he's talking about these great men and women of faith of yesteryear. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So God looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to come and follow me. Well, where are we going, God? <laughs> Don't worry about that. I want you to come and follow me. And Abraham goes and he lives with his father for a few years and eventually makes his way after his dad dies down to the promised land. What is so interesting about this whole scenario is, again, God is calling Abraham out from the world and is asking Abraham to walk in faith. Abraham, will you trust me? Will you obediently walk in a trust, a faith, and a dependence upon my word? In fact, even as you walk into the land of promise itself, what you begin to realize is that the land of promise is a place of faith. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel, it's interesting that if I was going to pick a promised land, I don't think I would pick Israel. <laughs> I would pick a place like Hawaii. You know, Hawaii sounds like a great promised land. You know, it's it's rich, it's abundant, it's, it's full of lushness. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. It just sounds like a great place to be. And yet when you look at the land of Israel, it's in the Middle East. It's full of desert. In fact, when it says it's it's a wilderness, you know, I live in the Rocky Mountains and I think wilderness, I'm thinking Rocky Mountain wilderness, you know, big mountains, tall trees, you know, bears and, you know, mountain goats and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's not this kind of wilderness. When you look at the land of Israel, most of it is just a desert. There's not a lot of trees. It's a lot of dirt and rocks. In fact, I love what David or how David described this land. He was running from Saul in, and in Psalm 63, 1, this is what David says about the land that he was in, which is down near the Dead Sea. But he said, oh God, you are my God. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. David's like, look, I am in this place without water. I am desperate for you, oh God. But he's using the landscape of Israel as a metaphor for his the longing of his soul. Do you realize that the place that God called Abraham to go to is, is not just a place where he was being led to in faith. It's a place where if you're going to dwell in Israel, you're going to have to dwell there 
in faith. In fact, when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the final exhortation to the people of Israel before they enter into the land of Israel, the land of promise. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, this is what Moses says to the people. Uh, speaking for God, he says, And it will be that if you li listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all of your heart and all of your soul, that I, Yahweh, will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and, and the late rains, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And I will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware, lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. And the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. Moses says, look, you need to keep walking in obedience, that you are about to enter into this land of promise, but it's a land that demands faith. And if you trust in your God, and if you hold fast to his promises and you obey his word, well, he promises to give the rain. But if you disobey and you follow other gods, well, he's going to withhold that rain and you are going to suffer. Isn't it interesting that God is always after a people of faith, that he calls Abraham to leave Come out of the world, leave your family, and come to the place I'm going to show you. Well, well, God, how am I going to do that? Through faith. Well, okay, here I am in the land of promise. How am I going to live in the land of promise? By faith. Do you realize that God is always after a people of faith? There's also an interesting thing in this passage in Genesis chapter 12. It's this idea that God is going after a kingdom people of promise. When you look back at that passage, God makes an incredible promise to Abraham. This is what it says here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Again, it says, Yahweh said to Abraham, go forth from your land and from your family and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Listen to this. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are seven I wills of this Abrahamic covenant that God is making. God says, look, there's nothing you have to do. I am making this covenant and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Do you realize what an incredible promise and declaration that is? God, in his overwhelming love and mercy, looks at this man and says, I am choosing you, Abraham, out of all the peoples of this world, for you to be a blessing. I will be your God. You will be my people. And when all the world looks at you and sees your God demonstrating himself through your life, O Abraham, then all the world will know me and want to know me. See, Abraham, you are to be the blessing to the world so that the world will come and want to know me. And I think strategically, and this is so brilliant, God strategically takes Abraham and puts him smack dab in the middle of this country called Israel, this promised land. And if you look at this, the strategy uh, geographically of this land, you realize that, that Israel is the land bridge that connects Asia and Africa and, and Europe all together. So in the ancient world, if you were going to go to any major sphere of the world, you always passed through Israel. Isn't it neat that God didn't hide his people? 
God didn't just say, okay, Abraham, I'm going to take you. I'm going to send you off into this island country, this new country called Hawaii. And it's going to be lush. It's going to be great. And you don't, you don't, you'll never have to trust me because the land will just produce fruit. No, God chooses a place, a desert where it says, Abraham, look, you're going to have to trust me every single year. You're going to have to trust me every single day. You are going to have to trust me and obey me. In fact, Abraham, I'm putting you strategically right in the middle of the, of the center of the world so that when the whole world is, is traveling through and doing the caravans and, and the, the trading and the battles, all the world will see you and see your faith in your God named Yahweh. And when all the world sees you, they will want to know me, says the Lord. And in you, all the families of the world will be blessed. And you see that promise beginning to be passed down. It goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who is called Israel. And eventually that promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse one through three, you see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What an amazing reality. Jesus is the fulfillment to that promise. That just as Abraham was to be a blessing to the world. Do you realize that that promise ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that he is the blessing to the world? In fact, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you realize that ultimately finds its fruition, fulfillment in Jesus? Listen to what Revelation says. In Revelation 5, 9, it says that they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you, speaking of Jesus, were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Sorry, and purchased for God with your blood. People, listen to this, he purchased for God people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do you realize that it is in Jesus that all the peoples of the world, every tongue, every nation, every tribe, finds its blessing and purchased salvific reality in Christ Jesus? that Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. You, you get glimmers of this throughout scripture. For example, Rahab, when she's in Jericho, she sees what God is doing, looks at the spies and says, I, I, I want in on this. I will protect you if you bring me salvation. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, Naomi, I, I'm going to cling to you like glue. I am not going to leave you. I see what your God is doing and I want a part of this. You see this in Naaman, the Syrian, where he has leprosy and he comes to Elisha. And when, when he's healed, he goes, I, for this point forward, will serve your God alone. Why? Because they're seeing something going on in the life of Israel. The writer of Hebrews harkens back to all of this in Hebrews 6. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in verses 11 through 20. He writes, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not become dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Did you hear that? That we are to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, this is Genesis chapter 12, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves, but with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute in the same way. Listen to this God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise 
Well, who are the heirs of the promise? It's us. That he wanted to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, the writer of Hebrews says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement and take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed and one which enters in within the veil where a forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The writer of Hebrews says, do you realize that just as Abraham held to the promise of God, and just as all the people of the earth were blessed through Abraham, do you realize that we, the believers in that in this generation, the writer of Hebrews is speaking in their generation, but it's still true for today, that we have a great consolation and hope. Why? Because God has promised he cannot lie. And do you realize what he's doing is, is that he has given us a promise and we are, as the writer of Hebrews says, the heirs of the promise. So think about this. We too are God's people of faith and promise. What you see going on in the life of Abraham really is the, the introduction, if you will, or the starting point of what God is doing throughout all of scripture, that God has chosen a person, a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then eventually the 12 tribes of Israel. And through them, God wanted the world to see the reality of what a people look like when they live by faith in their God. This is all fulfilled in the reality of Jesus Christ. And now you and I in Christ are grafted in and we get to be heirs of that very promise. Do you realize that you and I are called to be people of faith? That, that just as Abraham was called to leave the world that he knew and come and follow God in a place that he did not know, a place where he was called to walk by faith and trust and obedience every moment of every day, that, that's Christianity. That, that is our lives, that we are to leave the world and, and not be like the world around us. Yes, we may be in the world, but the heart of the world is not to be in us. We are in the world, but not of the world. That we are called to walk by trust and faith and dependence, abiding in our precious Savior. That we are the people of faith. And when the world looks at our lives, they too, just like they were to look at Abraham and see God, they are to look at us and see God. As we mentioned last week, we are image bearers. God made us to reflect his wonder and glory and grandeur that when, when people look at our lives, they are to see him. They are to see what it looks like for a man or a woman to walk in faith. Wouldn't it be amazing if you and I lived like that in this generation, that the promise of Abraham, which is fulfilled in Christ, still has an outflow in our modern generation because all the peoples of the earth will be blessed in Jesus is still true. And you and I are to be reflectors of that reality that as we walk in faith, the world wants desperately to know him. Hebrews eleven six says this, love this passage. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We are called to be people of faith because without faith, it is impossible to please God. But do you also realize that we are people of the promise? 
And yes, it is a fulfillment of the Genesis 12 Abrahamic promise that is fulfilled in Jesus. We get to participate in that. But Jesus often talked about this people of promise. And he talked about it in the sense of the promise of the Father. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 24, 49. He says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Speaking about Pentecost, that he was going to ascend into heaven. The Holy Spirit was going to come like a mighty rushing wind and feel the people of God. In fact, at the end of Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and this is how he described the Pentecost event. He says in Acts 2, 33, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from God the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. And then later he says, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all. And by the word, all is important there because that includes us. And for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. We are people of the promise. And the promise that we actually get to participate in is the promise of the Father, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And do you realize that when the Holy Spirit comes inside of our life, and now we have the indwelling life of Christ within via his spirit, do you realize that the world should look at us and go, I need your God. Whatever you have, I desperately need that. Just like Rahab did, just like Ruth did, people should look at your life and just say, I want in on that grand reality of Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you another passage. Second Peter, I, I read this one all the time, but Second Peter 1 Chapter uh, verse three and four says this, seeing that Jesus's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you hear that? that you are to come out from the world and not be like the world, that you are called to be a person of faith. And in Jesus, you have received all of his great, exceedingly great and precious promises. And everything that you and I need for life and for godliness is found in Christ Jesus. So no wonder the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So see this tra trajectory. In the very beginning part of Genesis, we have the kingdom introduced, but it's rejected. And over and over and over again, people are saying, God, I'm not interested in you. I'm, hey, I'm shaking my fist and rebellion in your face. I am not interested. And so God says, all right, I, I am so overwhelmed with love for the people of this world. We see that all throughout the New Testament, that God chooses one man named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to do something incredible in and through your life that in you or through you, all the nations of this world will be blessed because of me. Do you realize that that is still true today? That is so amazing. And what you'll find is that then becomes the foundation for what God is doing in the rest of the storyline of scripture that ultimately leads us to Jesus Christ. Again, we're going to keep walking through this in these upcoming weeks. But just as a reminder, if you want to go even deeper into this section of the storyline of scripture, each of these weeks that, that we're walking through this, I, on my own podcast, am talking about one of my favorite Christophanies or glimpses of Jesus in this part of scripture. 
So if you're interested in joining me in, in an even deeper look of this section of scripture, I would encourage you to check out the Deeper Christian Podcast, and I'll put a link for this down in the show notes or the description for this podcast. Can I encourage you to freshly go after Jesus? Can I freshly encourage you to be a man or a woman of faith who lives in the grand reality of that precious promise of God? So until next time, I'm cheering you on ever deeper into Jesus. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.